I'm Julia McFarlane, host of One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that shape our world. Together with my co-host, the former Chief of British Intelligence, Sir Richard Dearlove, we unpack the key decisions, past, present and future, that matter to us all. We drop new episodes every Thursday. But today we're bringing you one more decision. Smart analysis of the latest breaking news around the world with Global Situation Room President Brett Bruin, who served as the White House Director of Global Engagement during the Obama administration. Over to you, Brett. Joining us today from Hiroshima, Japan, where the G7 is about to meet, is diplomatic correspondent for Nikkei News, Ken Moriyasu. Ken, welcome to One Decision. Thank you for having me, Brett. I would just like to start with the atmosphere. You are sitting right now, as you just showed me, in the press center at the summit. What are the topics of conversation in the halls and over tea and meals that you're hearing from the journalists as well as the officials gathered there? So uh, unfortunately, the biggest news of this G7 is the fact that Biden um, is quickly going home after the the three days are over and not going to Papua New Guinea and um, Australia where the Quad meeting was supposed to go. So everybody is talking about how serious the US domestic issue is and how that might influence um, the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific. And indeed, we have a potential uh, catastrophic, one might say, US default that is looming large. How do you think both the domestic politics, the increasing toxicity and the polarization here in the U.S. is impacting America's influence, is impacting the confidence of uh, allies, especially those that are gathering from the largest economies in the world there at the G7? It's the great example of how international politics can only be conducted firmly if one politician has a, a stable uh, footing in domestic politics. And I think the same goes for Biden and the same goes for Emmanuel Macron, uh, who in a recent uh, visit to China um, raised eyebrows by saying that um, Europe should not be dragged into a conflict uh, between the US and China over Taiwan and that Europe has to maintain a strategic autonomy. I think he's very much playing to his domestic audience. Uh, much to the chagrin of the other uh, leaders of the Indo-Pacific. And I think this might have an impact on um, Fumio Kishida, the Japanese prime minister. He is um, rumored to be contemplating uh, calling a snap election after the G7. I think uh, this only reinforces um, the need for him to do so, uh, because if he doesn't, he would look very weak. And what can we expect then coming out of this uh, summit? Are there results that um, can restore confidence, a modicum of stability in the global economy, as well as obviously uh, addressing some of the real geopolitical crises that we confront at the moment, whether it's with the war in Ukraine, also obviously uh, increasing challenges in a post-pandemic period. Well, since it is held in Japan, um, the focus is going to be more on China than Ukraine. And the Japanese diplomats have been very um, uh, putting a lot of effort into um, the wording of how the G7 communique will describe Taiwan. And I think this G7 will go down in history as a pivotal turning point uh, where the G7 made clear that the Taiwan uh, crisis is not a Chinese domestic issue, but a matter of international concern. And the wording um, about 
Taiwan was first included in the G7 statement two G, uh, summits ago in 2021 in Cornwall, where the leaders just said they underscore the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. This time, they're going to add another line after that, saying the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait is important and it's an indispensable element of um, security and prosperity of the international community. So it's really underscoring the fact that it's not a Chinese domestic issue. And the G7 is in effect saying that if China conducts a military invasion of Taiwan, the G7 would not consider it as an internal affair of China, and it will uh, respond uh, as an international incident. Can this question of China and what may or may not happen with their aggressive posturing towards Taiwan. What is needed at this point from a Japanese perspective that we're not doing to create greater deterrence? It it feels like one of the lessons learned from Russia's invasion of Ukraine was that the international community did not have sufficient deterrence in place. Right. So this is a very important point. I think Japan's strategy is to form a unified uh, coalition that stands up against uh, forces that are trying to rewrite the international order. So Japan doesn't necessarily subscribe to President Biden's categorization of democracies versus autocracies, uh, because that excludes too many countries. Uh, Japan is trying to make the dividing line between those countries that want to maintain this free, open, and stable international order. And those countries like China and Russia who believe that the current order is unfair and therefore they need to create a new order that that they are more comfortable in. Japan believes that such a new order will fit the Chinese Communist Party, but will be uh, in effect something equivalent to might is right. So they're bigger, so they get more, more leeway. So Japan is not going to be comfortable in that order. So not only is Japan uh, opposing um, the creation of an order, it's trying to prevent such an order from emerging. Can we talk a little bit about the military transformation that is taking place in Japan right now? Um, Obviously, in in the post-World War II period, Japan had um, largely... Uh, stayed in the uh, national defense posture, uh, did not have uh, a great deal of uh, military capacity. We saw how in the run-up to the war in Iraq, Japan started to uh, come out of that a little bit. And now, uh, with obviously both threats from uh, Russia as well as China, Japan is uh, looking at a new military structure. Can you tell us what is happening on that front? And and what do you think internally can be supported? I imagine there are uh, quite vigorous debates about this. Well, uh, in one sentence, Japan looked at what happened in Afghanistan. And it also looked at what happened in Ukraine. So when the Afghan troops um, could not fight anymore and gave up to the Taliban, the U.S. wasn't there to help them. They, they left. And uh, Japan feels that if in the traditional arrangement with the U.S., the U.S. Uh, role was to be the spear and Japan's role was to be the shield. And Japan would focus on defending the Japanese um, mainland and um, the U.S. would do the fighting. But uh, more and more, um, the Japanese 
decision makers are realizing that that probably won't work and that Japan has to take some role in, in acting as a spear as well. And also it looked at what happened in Ukraine when the Ukrainians were willing to fight and it was the Americans and the whole of NATO behind Ukraine, then America will be much more comfortable in fighting for Ukraine or helping Ukraine in a serious way. So I, I think those are the lessons Japan took. And also, um, Japan isn't so-called militarizing. Uh, uh, none of the defensive buildup is intended to take an inch of Chinese territory, for instance. It is all defensive, and moreover, it is to restore the balance, the power balance in the Indo-Pacific, which has tilted too much in China's favor. Uh, that's what Japan believes. And that is most uh, exemplified in the difference of number of intermediate and middle-range missiles. Uh, China has 2,000. America has zero. America has zero because it was part of the INF Treaty with the Soviet Union. And for years, America had um, not built these missiles. But China, not being part of this treaty, was allowed to build up its arsenal, and now it's a 2,000 to zero difference. And Japan believes that in the next five to 10 years, when the Taiwan crisis reaches its peak, in those five to 10 years, America would not be able to fill the gap on its own. So that's why Japan and Australia and the UK have to join uh, forces um, to fill in this gap, to rebalance um, the deficiencies in the power balance. When I was in the Obama administration, we had this famous pivot to Asia, which uh, didn't perhaps fully take place uh, in part because we were contending with uh, the rise of ISIS and, and other challenges. Then during the Trump administration, you had the creation of this concept of the Indo-Pacific region trying to bring in the world's largest democracy in India into this fold of nations that stretched out uh, from South Asia all the way through to uh, the Hawaiian Islands and the California coast. How's that going from where you sit in Hiroshima? Have we effectively stitched together a strong coalition? Does Japan see this coalition as a central part of its efforts, both uh, to contain China as well as to cooperate on other economic and political fronts? Right. So the inclusion of India um, in the Quad and uh, more, um, more and more um, joint exercises uh, in the security front is very crucial uh, in this chess game with China. And not because India will join the US and Japan in defending Taiwan, but because India itself has so much tension with China on the border and the, in the Himalaya mountains, that if in a time of Taiwan crisis, if India is strong uh, on the Himalaya front, that creates a two-front problem for China, which would only benefit uh, the US and Japan. Also, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, if uh, the US and South Korea are strong, that creates another headache for China. And also in the South China Sea and the South Pacific, uh, with the AUKUS arrangement, if uh, the Australia, the UK and the US strengthen their deterrence in those areas, that's a fourth front for China. So uh, not just focusing on the Taiwan Strait issue, but creating all these problems for China kind of balances out uh, the problems, and that is very beneficial for US and Japan. One last question, Ken, and our program is called One Decision. 
today, I'd like if you could take our audience into that cavernous hall where you currently sit. There are a lot of uh, preparations that go into hosting a summit like the G7, and the host country has the ability to make small decisions, but small decisions that can be important in terms of either the type of events that take place, the the protocol, uh, some of even um, the the food and the, and the cultural uh, program. What are you seeing there in terms of what Japan has done and how they put this G7 together that perhaps in small but significant ways uh, is helping to drive Japan's agenda towards the outcome that it would like to see from this important gathering? So the most uh, important characteristic of the Hiroshima G7 is the fact that it's being held in the city of Hiroshima, which is the first city in the world to uh, suffer uh, the attack of a nuclear weapon. And it also happens to be the constituency of Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Uh, Kishida-san was very um, determined to bring the G7 to his hometown uh, while he was Prime Minister. But it also um, um, symbolizes a contradiction that Japan has. Kishida and Japan would like to see a world without nuclear weapons, but the reality is that Japan is protected by the extended deterrence, the nuclear umbrella of America. So it is very difficult for Japan to openly say, we want a world without nuclear weapons right now. The task at hand is kind of how to make sure that the extended deterrence is working and that China would think twice or North Korea would think twice while taking action. So here, um, Japan has a very uh, difficult balancing act. But I I take um, a wisdom from Michelle Obama, uh, who on her book tour always talks about uh, can women have it all? Can they have a career and can they have a family life too? And she says, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. So I think this goes for the same with Japan. Japan would like a world without nuclear weapons, but it can have it right now. It will one day um, be able to uh, survive this crisis that we're in now under the nuclear umbrella, but then reach a world without nuclear weapons, hopefully in the future. Well, an interesting point to end on, certainly the backdrop of this uh, summit being held in Hiroshima does not go unnoticed. And uh, Ken Moriyasu, I very much appreciate your time stepping away from uh, the summit to speak with us here on One Decision. Thank you very much for having me. That's it from this world update from the One Decision podcast. If you enjoyed this little conversation, why not check out our channel for our main offerings, which drop every Thursday. Just search One Decision wherever you find your podcasts. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.